Hi, Future Hindsight listeners. One great way you can support our show is by sharing this episode with your friends who you think would enjoy it. We have an easy-to-use tool that makes it really simple to share episodes through email, social media, your group thread, or wherever you share podcasts. And to say thanks, we'll express gratitude to everyone who signs up to share right here on the podcast. So this week, we'd like to thank Jay, Allison, Adam, Merdad, and Fernando. Thank you. We have some other fun perks we'd like to send your way too, including a Future Hindsight button and a Moleskin notebook, depending on how many people you refer. Help support the show and get your special link to share at refer.fm slash future dash hindsight or by following the link in the show notes. A few weeks ago, we had a call out for you guys to participate in an audience survey. Thanks so much to all of you who helped us out and took part. We reached our minimum threshold. That's really fantastic news. Thank you. We got some really good feedback on what you like and what you don't like. So, of course, some people thought we don't have enough episodes and some people thought we have too many. So that made our team chuckle. But seriously, we loved the input and suggestions. Also, we do need more data, the more the merrier and the more accurate. To participate, please go to our show notes and click on the link for the survey there. It will take about five minutes to complete it. It's a great free way to support Future Hindsight and all the work we do. We hope you'll take the time to help us out. Thank you so much. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Walter Gilliam. He's professor of child psychiatry and psychology at the Yale University Child Study Center and the director of the Edward Ziegler Center in Child Development and Social Policy. Sometimes bias is totally obvious, as we've heard in relation to indigenous students, but often, it's implicit and unintentional. We talked about that at length with Mari Matsuda, one of the founding practitioners of critical race theory. In this episode, we'll be examining a study by Dr. Gilliam and his team on implicit bias in preschool teachers. The study is called Do Early Educators' Implicit Biases Regarding Sex and Race Relate to Behavior Expectations and Recommendations of Preschool Expulsions and Suspensions? If you are skeptical about implicit bias and how it works in practice, this conversation might change your mind. What we found that was a bit shocking was this, that the degree to which teachers were focusing more on black children, especially black boys, was about the same regardless of the race of the teacher. And the reason why is because the bias is implicit. It's not something that we're intending to do. It's something that we do because of our expectations our expectations that are shaped by the things that we see on television, the things that we hear in the news, all the things we see and all the things we hear and all the things we think we've seen and heard that tell us what to expect out of which child. We talk about the prevalence of implicit bias in our teachers, the promise of universal pre-K in mitigating that bias, and having conversations about the problems we face as the first step to solving them. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Mila. 
So you conducted a study to assess the potential role of preschool educators' implicit biases in disproportionate expulsion of black boys. What prompted you to do this study? We started this study back in 2002-2003, and at the time I was mostly interested in how state-funded preschool programs. As we were getting ready to do this big national study, I was also working at the Yale Child Studies Center, supervising child psychologists and psychiatrists and pediatricians who were working with young children and couldn't help but notice that many young children who were under the age of five were referred to us because they had been kicked out of a preschool program or expelled from a childcare program. And so we thought, well, if we're going to be doing this national study anyway, why not weave in a few extra questions about expulsion and see what we find? And we were absolutely shocked to find that children were expelled from preschool programs, three and four-year-old children, at a rate more than three times that of grades K through 12 combined. And when talking about childcare programs, the rate's about 13 times that of schools. Okay, that's really shocking. What is the kind of behavior that gets you kicked out as a preschooler? Because I have to be honest, I have never heard of anybody being expelled in preschool. It's crazy sounding, isn't it? To be kicked out of school before you even get to school. What we've found is that oftentimes it's for very simple things like not complying, not going along with rules. Um, I've heard of children being expelled because of zero tolerance policies. A child who came to school with a water gun And because the water gun looks like a gun, the child was expelled. I've heard of a child who was expelled from a child care program that was associated with a school that came to the school with a backpack and the backpack smelled a little funny and the teachers opened up the backpack and found a bag of marijuana. And it turned out that the bag of marijuana belonged to mom's boyfriend who was visited by the police the night before and needed to have a quick place to hide it. And then he forgot to get it back out. And so this child's um, crime was that he just went to school and took his backpack with him. I've heard of children expelled for running down the hallway in a way that makes program and the administrators afraid that the child might get hurt. Um, it, it can kind of run the gamut, but in many cases, the main reason that children are expelled at three and four years old often seems to be because they're acting like three or four-year-old children. Okay, that's deeply disturbing because I think the whole point of going to preschool is to learn things like standing in line, learning to cooperate and or taking turns, because those things are skills that you need to practice. How do preschools frame this in a way that people think, oh, okay, I guess that's okay? Well, for the most part, they don't frame it at all, because they just don't talk about it. It just happens a lot in silence. you'll, You'll never be driving your car down the road and see somebody in their car with a bumper sticker that says, proud mother of an expelled preschooler. Nobody's proud of this, but when you do talk to childcare providers, oftentimes what they say is that they have many children that they have to take care of, that they're concerned about safety issues, and that they also have to make sure that children are learning in order to be able to satisfy state requirements. And so as a result, childcare programs and preschool programs that were mostly about school readiness, like what you were talking about before, have over the years become already school-readied programs, where the expectation is that these children who are entering into these childcare programs and 
preschool programs at three and four years old are there to learn how to get along with others and be able to participate in school, the expectation is instead that they're already ready to do that. And uh, that's where I think that we're doing a disservice to these children. For sure. So let's talk about your study. How did you set it up? Well, we were interested in whether or not it's possible that the reason that we were expelling more children of color, especially black boys, might be due to biases that teachers might have. And so, of course, that's a tricky question to ask. And so we needed to have a way to be able to measure something that would indicate that the bias existed without requiring the person to have to admit it. What we used was an eye tracking device. In this study, we had preschool teachers from around the country sit down in front of a video of four children playing at a desk. And the instructions were to watch these four children interacting at a, at a table, and that your job is to find examples of challenging behaviors before they become too problematic. The secret to being able to manage challenging behaviors is to be able to pick up on little cues that something might go awry before it becomes too problematic. So we're going to be tracking your eyes to see where you're looking on this video screen. And every time you see something happen that could turn into a behavior problem, I want you to hit this button on the side. That's what we told the teachers. Now, the part that we didn't tell the teachers was this. No child is going to misbehave in any of these videos. All of these children are essentially child actors that we had hired to sit at a table and play with each other quietly. What I'm really interested in is where do your biases take your eyes when you expect that a child could misbehave? And it just so happens that in these videos, there's a black boy, a black girl, a white boy, and a white girl. So in other words, we're not looking to see you know, how quickly you can find behavior problems. We're looking to see where do your biases take your eyes in terms of who do you expect to misbehave? Well, first, I want to ask this question, which is, did anybody hit the button? Yes, everybody hit the button. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so did they everybody hit the, hit button? the button several times? <laughs> several times. Okay, what behavior prompted them to hit the button? Virtually nothing. I mean, in order to be able to do a study like this, we had to key them up to expect that somebody might misbehave. And, and right. it certainly worked. You know, they thought that their job was to find the misbehavior. There, I mean, there was some other twist to the study, too. And that's that after about six minutes of watching videos of these four children shot from different angles, we then um, have the screen go blank. And then we show them a picture of each one of the four children. And the instructions are to please remember the letter next to the picture of the child you feel you had to watch the most we're still tracking their eyes and we know which pictures they look at the longest and we know which letters they look at the longest. And then the screen goes blank again and it asks them to enter the letter of the child they built that they had to watch the most. We were really interested in three things. The first one is in the first six minutes, where do your biases take your eyes? And then the second part, and are you aware of where your biases took your eyes? Do you know which child you were really watching the most? And then in the third part, are you willing to admit it? Because if we want to diffuse a bias bomb, we have to know a little bit about how it's wired. 
we were calling this unconscious bias, but for all I knew, maybe the teachers were fully aware of the fact that they were watching black boys differently than other children. All right. So tell us about what you saw in terms of which child they tracked the most, and then the second and third part. Well, teachers significantly watched more children who were black. They watched the black boy and the black girl more than they watched the white children, especially the black boy. But when we asked teachers who they thought they watched the most, they mostly thought that they were watching mostly boys, especially the black boy. Either way, in terms of what their eyes were doing or what they were thinking their eyes were doing, the black boy ends up at the short end of the stick. But in terms of what was actually happening, in terms of where they were watching, the main effect was based on race. More attention paid to black children, especially the black boy. But what they thought they had was a gender bias. That's fascinating. So what did you discover in the study that was basically in keeping with your hypothesis? And what was not in keeping with your hypothesis? What we found that was a bit shocking was this, that the degree to which teachers were focusing more on black children, especially black boys, was about the same regardless of the race of the teacher. And the reason why is because the bias is implicit. It's not something that we're intending to do. It's something that we do because of our expectations, our expectations that are shaped by the things that we see on television, the things that we hear in the news, all the things we see and all the things we hear and all the things we think we've seen and heard that tell us what to expect out of which child. Yeah, well, so none of those things are surprising. And I think even in some sense, we are all, you know, so deeply conditioned to expect something that even it may not matter what our own race is and who we end up watching. In terms of the long-term repercussions for children, how does implicit bias follow them throughout our education system, let's say until high school? And in what way does it negatively impact them? That's a great question. If it's possible, I'd like to tell you about the second part of the study before I answer that question. So after the teachers finished the eye tracking portion, we then had them read a story about a child with a significant challenging behavior. We had these teachers read these vignettes of stories about a child with a very significant behavior problem, hits and scratches other children, sometimes hits the teacher, uh, won't go down for a nap, a level of behavior problems that you couldn't really ignore. And then we asked the teachers to rate how severe that behavior problem would be if that were to happen in their own classroom. And everybody got the exact same story, except that we changed the name. And either the name implied a black boy or a black girl or a white boy or a white girl. And then we were interested in when we give these stories to people, do they rate the behavior problem differently depending on what the race and the gender of the child is that they think. And there was a second twist to it. And the second twist is that some people in each one of those groups also got a second paragraph. And the second paragraph explained a lot of the stressors that the family might be experiencing, things that could help maybe explain, well, why a child might be having a hard time 
mom and dad uh, don't get a chance to see each other much. Dad's gone a lot when he is home. Oftentimes, mom and dad fight. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes the child sees this. We were interested in whether or not we would find evidence of bias based on the race or the ethnicity or the gender of the child and whether or not knowing more about the family might impact that perception. If you knew more about the reason for the stress that the child might be experiencing, would it cause you to be more empathic and view that behavior problem as maybe less severe because now I can understand where it's coming from? And what we found was that the second paragraph did work, but only kind of. It only worked if the teacher and the child were of the same race. If the teacher was white and the child was white, or the teacher was black and the child was black in the story, then if we gave that second set of information, then the teacher became more accepting of the behavior problem and thought, well, I can understand where this is coming from and rated the behavior problem as less severe. But if the teacher was of a different race than the child, the more information we gave that teacher, the more problematic the behavior seemed and the more hopeless the teacher became that anything could ever be done to improve the situation. Essentially, what we found was the impact that race has on empathy in terms of understanding where our children are coming from and the lives that they lead and how that might impact the way in which they present in our classrooms. So knowing what you know today, if you were to redo this study, how would you redesign it? What's a question that you wish you had asked? I'm glad that you asked that. We um, designed the study back in 2015, and we implemented the study in 2015 and 16, and came out with the results in 2016, and now it's 2020. And when we first came up with the idea of that study, we were interested in just implicit bias, the biases that we have that we don't intend to have. And if I were to do it over again, I would also look at the more explicit biases, the biases we have that we fully intend to have. In many ways, looking at 2015, 2016 with 2020 eyes now, I feel like I was naive back then in terms of mostly just looking at the implicit bias. When in fact, some of the times for some people, it might just be plain old racism. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Hi everyone. If you love Future Hindsight, I know you'll love the Civics Club. Our Patreon subscription, which gives you early episode drops, ad-free episodes, transcripts, and more. For just $1.99 a month, you can support our indie podcast and be a part of the Future Hindsight community. This week, we're giving free access to our bonus interview content so you can try it out and hear for yourself. Go to our Patreon page and listen to more of this interview and learn about how Dr. Gilliam came to be interested in child psychology and why he's committed to early childhood education. We'll also go into more detail about the study. I think this bonus content is really terrific and hope you'll head over to patreon.com slash futurehindsight to tune in. See you there. I want to go back to my question about the long-term repercussions of implicit bias in our education system. What do you think is maybe the most damaging thing that happens to Black children as they go through our education system? 
Well, my biggest worry, and this is for black children, for brown children, for any child who might be on the receiving end of negative implicit biases, is that as we interact with children differently on the basis of assumptions that we have about them, they have maybe nothing to do with them at all. And the way that they might interpret it is, school is not a good place for me, or teachers don't like me, or this is not going to be a place where I'm going to be made to feel good about myself. And you can also think about the impact that this might have on the other children too. Can you imagine being in a classroom where every time something goes bump or boom or something happens, a teacher is calling out a certain child's name before they even turn their head. And it's always the same kind of child. How does that impact not only the child, but also the other children? And how quickly might children actually be able to pick up on the bias of the fact that whenever something goes wrong, it's always that child, or it's always a child like that child. It's fascinating to think about what kind of impact this might have on the individual child. It's fascinating to think about what kind of impact this might have on the expectations of the other bystander children around them. And when you think about the impact of it, it's more than fascinating. It's terrifying. Yes, it is. We all know that child in our lives, right? And so we know how traumatic it is for those children and how stigmatized they are in the classroom by their peers and how that compounds the trauma of being in this classroom. So in all of your work that you've done in this field, what have you discovered is maybe the most promising avenue to combat or to mitigate the impact of implicit bias? Well, the thing that gives me the most hope uh, is something that we had found in that eye tracking study. It was a deception study because we, we couldn't really tell the teachers up front that we were looking to see which children they look at the most based on race because that would impact who they looked at. And so we, we couldn't tell them the full truth. But for ethical purposes, when you can't tell somebody the full truth at the beginning of a study, you need to come clean and tell them the full truth after the study data have been collected. And then give them the opportunity to, if they would like, withdraw their data. So we collected all this data, 130... It was, it was a few years ago, so I'm trying to remember exactly how many. It was 135 child care providers. And um, after the conference was over where we collected the data, we contacted them all to tell them the truth. And two of them we couldn't find, so we withdrew their data. And of the 133 left, only one of them wanted us to withdraw her data. The rest of them were perfectly fine with the fact that they knew now that we were doing a study, not of how quickly they could find behavior problems, but a study of implicit bias, and in particular, their implicit biases regarding race. And to me, that's the most promising thing that we found in the entire study, was the fact that for the most part, teachers are a group of people who perhaps care more about the babies in their care than they do their own biases and their own sense of guilt about what biases they might have in them. And as a result, that gives us a lot to work with. That makes a lot of sense. I haven't thought about it that way. You are a big advocate for universal preschool. 
how do you think universal preschool could be designed to alleviate the implicit bias that you've discovered? Is there a way to institutionalize certain practices? And how would you go about implementing that? One of the reasons that I'm an advocate of universal preschool education is because I'm not an advocate of segregated preschool experiences. And in many cases, that's what we have now. Many of our programs are programs that are designed specifically for low-income children, or in some cases, children living in poverty. And in some communities, that is de facto segregating children on the basis of race or ethnicity. One of the concerns that I have is that when we corral all the children who look this way into that program over here, and all the children who look a different way into a different set of programs, then we're already institutionally creating a basis for thinking about children of different backgrounds, different races, and coloration differently. And so one of the reasons that I am an advocate for universal preschool education is because it gives us a vehicle by which we can stop doing that. But just because we're putting children of different races and genders and SES together does not mean that we will be treating them all similarly or that we will be treating them all with a degree of equity. And so universal is the beginning, The universal is certainly not the end of what we need to be doing in order to be able to make sure that all of our children have an equitable set of opportunities to succeed. So what does it take for children to succeed? Why is it important to invest in early childhood? So I was on my way to Washington a few years ago to testify for the House Appropriations Committee on Early Childhood Spending. And I was on my way there and I stopped off at a deli and there was this man there who was in his 90s at the time. And he is the town expert on anything having to do with gardening. He's a peach tree farmer. And, um, and so everybody would come to him with whatever kind of gardening question that they had. And I was getting my coffee to go to the airport to fly to Washington. And for reasons that I don't even fully understand today, I, I asked him a question about early childhood. His name is Richard Doolittle. And so everybody called him Dr. Doolittle because he was the town expert on something. <laughs> and so I said, Dr. Doolittle, as a peach tree farmer, if I wanted to grow a peach tree that, that produced good peaches, and I could divide the growing season of this peach tree into three different phases. The first one is when I put the seed into the ground until it sprouts. And the second one is when the sprout turns into a tree. And the third one is when the tree starts to bear fruit. If I divided the lifespan of a tree into those three phases, and say, for instance, I could make one of those phases absolutely perfect in terms of the weather, perfect rain, perfect sun. The other two, I don't know what I'm going to get, but one of them, I could make it perfect. Which one would you pick? And without wasting any time at all, he said, well, I'd pick the first one. And I said, well, why would you pick the first one? And he said, Because whatever you do to that little seed sets the potential of everything that tree can become. And that's when I knew on my way to Washington that if they weren't going to listen to my science, maybe they would at least listen to the wisdom of a peach tree farmer. Oh, that's beautiful. I hope you did tell that story in Congress. I did. You're hearing. <laughs> I did. But I didn't tell it on the record. I told it after, you know, it was over and somebody was asking some other questions on the side. But 
I should have told it on the record so uh, Dr. Doolittle's name could get entered into the record. That's it. Well, and his wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we know these things. We don't do these things. We get distracted by other things instead that seem more pressing than our children. But it's fascinating to think that anything could be more pressing than the future and the well-being of our children. We could talk about yeah. peach trees. We could talk about bonsai trees. You know, you get a bonsai tree by just gentle shaping in the early parts of that tree. And then you shape that tree in a variety of different directions, and it starts to grow in those directions. You know, and we shape our children all the time. And in many cases, we shape them without our knowledge, just by the little teeny tiny things that we do that we don't even anticipate. But we shape them nonetheless. Yes. Yes, for sure. Well, I have two more questions. The first is, if universal pre-K can be part of the larger solution, as an everyday person, how can I advocate for universal pre-K all over the country? What are two well, things? Two things. As an, so you're saying as an average parent or you're as saying an as an average parent? Yeah. yeah, as an average parent, because I think probably if you're not a parent, you're not motivated. <laughs> Let's assume. Talk to your elected officials. Talk to your your state representative, talk to your congressional representatives, senators, and tell them as a taxpayer that this is where you would like your money to go. We really, as electors, have an awful lot of power that we oftentimes don't wield very well. Or if we do wield it, it's, it's only during the actual election and not during all the time in between. You know, write to your congressperson, you know, or call and say, this is something that I want my taxpayer dollars to go towards. And in many cases, they will listen because they need your vote or they will need your vote soon. And if you have a young child, then certainly do that. But if you don't have a young child and your child is now in kindergarten or elementary school, middle school, high school, and you're still so inclined as to care about the experiences that all of our children get, then please do it anyway, you know, because to be able to hear from parents who are not actually going to directly benefit from this, but advocate for this because it's the right thing in general, can be even more powerful. I mean, another thing that we can do, too, is we can talk to our business leaders. Oftentimes, elected officials listen to business leaders, and business leaders, in many cases, would like to see universal child care and universal preschool education. Why? because their employees need it in order to be able to come to work reliably. And if that were more available, then workers would be able to come to work better. If we care about employability of parents, we should care about childcare. And if we care about the long-term outcomes for children, we should care about the quality of the early learning experiences that they receive. If we care about gender equity in the workplace, then we absolutely should care about childcare. I mean, just about any topic that we can think about will go back to how we treat the very youngest among us. Here, here. So, last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Things like this. Conversations. You know, the fact that I don't know exactly how you found out about the work that I do, but you did, and you wanted to have a conversation about it, and you wanted to share it. You know, that, that's the part that makes me the most hopeful. The things that we 
don't talk about are the things that we'll never be able to find shared solutions for. And I think that's the key part. I mean, none of these solutions will ever be solutions that any of us can do individually. They will only be able to be solutions that we come to and implement in a shared sense. And that requires conversations. And the fact that conversations like this happen, that's what gives me hope. Excellent. That gives me hope, too. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Oh, and thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for, for having these conversations. It's been a pleasure for me. As I expressed in the interview, I was really shocked by the purported reasons for which children are expelled from preschool or childcare centers. To get kicked out for age-appropriate behavior is simply unconscionable. And to make matters worse, to expel primarily black boys is the most disheartening part. In addition to robbing those children from the opportunity to learn school readiness, it makes them dread school, probably for the rest of their lives, and prevent them from reaping the rewards of education. This is indeed the beginning of the school-to-prison pipeline. Since we know that segregated neighborhoods are the reason for segregated schools, I had not thought of universal pre-kindergarten as a place that could mitigate implicit bias. It may not accomplish as much as we'd like, but still, universal early childhood education will undoubtedly help level the playing field, helping more children reach their life's potential and paying more attention to these crucial early years can only be good for society. Next week, our guest is Franklin Gilliam. He's the chancellor of UNC Greensboro and has spent more than 30 years in higher education, including as dean of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and professor of public policy and political science. We talk about the power of striving for excellence in all of our students, diversity on campus, and why discrimination harms our broader society and prevents prosperity for everyone. Once the leadership collectively opens up their societal aperture, by that I mean they're willing to look for candidates in places where people don't look like them, it provides value to the organization. This is the thing, we're not doing this just because we want people of color and women, just because. We want the best people, so therefore we don't want you to exclude people of color and women. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.